Welcome to Trilor Talk. I'm Scott Glovsky, and I'm your host for this podcast where we speak with some of the best trial lawyers in the United States. We simply have great lawyers, tell great stories from cases that had a profound impact on them. So let's get started. I'm really happy and and frankly excited to be sitting across the table from my good friend, phenomenal trial lawyer, Stephen Demick. Stephen practices in Los Angeles and Southern California and South Dakota and is truly someone who's got you know, more talent in his little finger than most lawyers have in their entire body and someone who has sat across the room from me the night before my opening statement in more than one case and counseled me and guided me through my own anxieties and fears into getting down to a good, effective opening statement and and many other things. So, Stephen, thanks so much for being with us. Well, I'm I'm honored, Scott, and I was telling you before, I love this show. I love listening to it. It's a piece of the ranch that I can put on my computer, and I can hear voices of people that I love and admire and respect, and I always walk away with something, like a little gem. And so I want to thank you for doing this, and also, back at you, buddy. You're one of the best trial attorneys I know. And it's an honor to be sitting across from you and having this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. So let's get this love fest started. (laughs) Stephen, share with us a story of a case that had a profound impact on you. Well, if somebody asked me that question, I would say it would be a case that I lost. And the reason is, is because, uh, you know, most people expect you to tell the story about the fantastic acquittal you got or the brilliant closing argument that you did. And I make it a point that some of the cases where I was uh, learned the most and was most proud of my work were, were convictions, were, were cases that I lost. But I want to go back to a case in 2005 in San Diego. And uh, my client um, was a uh, Mexican uh, gentleman. And he was stopped at a border, uh, not a border crossing, but a border stop in Arizona. And he was in a U-Haul van and it was just him. And there was a ton of marijuana in the U-Haul van. Literally, they weighed it a ton. And there was nothing else. There was no furniture or no books or nothing. It was just marijuana in this U-Haul van. And admittedly, I tried this case before I had come to the ranch, but looking back at it, there were so many things that happened that I learned from that are taught here, that are taught here by staff that that you learn here and the method. Um, So that's the case that I would pick. Um, And there's a few reasons, but if... Sure, tell us the story of the case. Well, so... um, uh, 
my client uh, gave a quasi confession when when he was arrested in the U-Haul van. Then they brought him out and he he was interviewed, but they didn't record it. And I had this moment where the agent was on the stand, and I was a, a young attorney at the time. And I took him on, and I said, "You didn't record his statement, so that this jury could hear that statement, and we could verify what you're saying. You're saying my client said, "Yeah, I knew there were drugs in the U-Haul van." And I think this agent was feeling, you know, maybe like antagonistic towards me. And he said, oh, well, our, our video camera was broken at the Border Patrol station. And mid-trial, I subpoenaed the Border Patrol guy who's in charge of the video cameras. And I called him up and I had him at my office at 6 a.m. the next day. I threw a subpoena on him. I brought him into court and he told that jury that that was a lie. That that agent had boldface lied to them. And it was an acquittal, but I talked to the jury afterwards and I asked this juror, because I think I'd taken it a little personal, which again, I was young, what he thought of that border patrol agent. And he said, nah, he was just doing his job. And they acquitted my client. So, hey, you can't, I'm not complaining with the outcome, but it taught me something that if you're going to call a person of authority, a liar. Even when you do it, and even when you do it effectively, um, you can't count on it landing the way it lands in your head. It comes across different to a juror. That's one thing I learned, and that's one story of the case, because it's very rare that you catch a police officer or an agent actually tell a lie or commit perjury. And I felt like I did it, and the jury really wasn't bothered by it. No, it's interesting. You know, I recently heard Ray Foreman say there's three stories in the case. There's our story, the plaintiff's story. There's the defendant's story. And there's the jury's story. And the only story that matters is the jury's story. That's absolutely true. And I thought of that too. And, and I, that's something that I've said in closing arguments to juries. I said, there's the truth of what happened. There's the prosecutor's story, number two. And number three is there's the truth that came out in the courtroom, the truth of the trial, as you would call it. And I used to say that in closing arguments to sort of uh, demonstrate for the jury that none of us were there that night. I'm thinking of this case in particular. None of us were there when he was given the keys by these men who had hired him to move furniture in a U-Haul van from Mexico to Arizona which is the story of the case, which is the defense, which is he didn't know the marijuana was in the U-Haul van. Um, none of us were there because we sit in a courtroom as lawyers with suits and the jurors are there and the judge is there, but we're really recreate, we're trying to recreate what happened in reality that none of us were there. And um, that's a fascinating point that I've always brought into closing argument, but I like what you said, which is there's the jury story, which is the ultimate one which is the jury's story is either going to be a story about justice, a story about every day in this country, you know, prosecutors obtain convictions beyond a reasonable doubt and things like that. But that's the one that counts, right? It's the jury's story. That's the one that ultimately we're trying to bring about and give life to. And can you reverse roles with your client in this case? Yeah, I can. And um, that's another point is that I was prepping him to testify because I was convinced up until 
the middle of trial that I was going to have him testify. And there's a lot of schools of thought on whether you put a criminal defendant on the stand or not. And I won't get into that, but I was prepping him to testify and we were talking about it and I was going through my questions and the defense ultimately, if you shave the onion down all the way down was that he was stupid. He was stupid because he made a mistake in trusting these guys and giving them keys and asking them to get paid $300 to drive it across the border into Arizona because it had furniture and he never looked in the U-Haul van. Stupidity or a mistake, more kind, a mistake. And I was talking to him and when I was prepping him to testify, uh, his name was Miguel. He just did not want to look stupid. He did not want to look bad. And I said something to him that I have always carried with me when I'm prepping a criminal defendant to testify. And it's a little crass, but I'm going to say it anyway. You have your ass and your face, and you can only save one. And when I've seen criminal defendants go in there and testify, and they don't want to look bad, they, don't, they want to appear uh, polished and varnished, and they want to appear good in front of the jury, they hang themselves because they're ultimately defeating their defense. And so my client going in and wanting to look sophisticated, smart, educated, worldly, which we all do, we all want to look that way. I can empathize with that. But for him in that moment, he didn't understand that to me as a lawyer, he was really introducing cognitive dissonance to what I was trying to tell the jury was the real story. So uh, yes, I could reverse roles with him and I can do it right now. Please. Because I, I, I'm here on the ranch, and every time I stand up in front of a group of people, I don't want to look bad. I want to look good. I want to look like I know what I'm doing. I want to look uh, suave, savoir-faire, all those things. And I think we can all identify with that. Well, what I'd like you to do right now is reverse roles with your client. Oh, okay. All right. Um, What's your name? My name is Miguel. Uh, Miguel, close your eyes for a second. Yeah. Sit the way you sit. Feel yourself in your body. And when you're tuned in, open your eyes. Nice to meet you, Miguel. Hello. How'd you get into this mess? Well, I'm a mover, and uh, i uh, that's what I do for a living. And uh, I had a word from my friend that these men were going to pay $300 to just drive a van. And that's what I do for a living, and it sounded like a normal job. It's what I do normally, and um, I didn't know what was in that van. And I got stopped at a checkpoint. I showed them my papers, and they tell me there's drogas, there's marijuana in, in the van. And if we step back and go a bit deeper, something that might be referred to as a chair back, how are you feeling now? Scared. Absolutely scared. I'm in a foreign country. Uh, I've been here before. It's not like I haven't been to the United States, but now I'm in jail in the United States and I'm far away from home and I'm scared. I'm terrified. I'm looking at five years in prison. It's a mandatory minimum. 
So my lawyers told me. And how do you feel about your lawyer and this system? He cares. He, he, he seems to be invested in my case. He seems to care about me. He talks to me a little brusque sometimes, but I know that it's coming from a place that he really wants to win my case. He really wants me to go home. He's told me that. Do you trust the system? No. Not at all. There's all kinds of guys back in this jail where I am right now waiting trial uh, who've been given real raw deals. I don't trust the system at all. So what, regardless of what your lawyer tells you, what do you feel like you have to show to get out of this? Well, they have to like me. I mean, if they like me and they think I'm a good guy, they'll let me go home. And how can you look like a good guy? Well, I can show them that I'm a good person. Uh, I don't commit crimes. I don't use drugs. Uh, and they'll see that. And I'm a good family man. And when they see that, the judge will send me back to Mexico, back to my family. What are you most afraid of? Being stuck in prison for five years. Right now, yes. It terrifies me. And for people to think that I'm a drug dealer. I mean, after all, you did this for 300 bucks? That's right. Well, it's not a lot of money. I mean, well, I, I shouldn't say that. What does 300 bucks represent to you? It's a good, it's about a half week on a, on a good week. That's about a half week salary. I would say it's pretty good money. It's not going to make my month, but if maybe these guys think I'm good at my job, maybe they're going to send me other jobs and maybe they're going to give me more clients. Do you have people that rely on you? My family. You send them money? I do. Absolutely. I bring money back, and if I'm in the United States on a job, I'll send it back. Is there anything else we need to know about you? I don't really understand this system. I don't. I don't understand it, but I trust my lawyer. And if you could say anything to your lawyer, he couldn't hear you, but your innermost thoughts, what would they be? Um... Get me out of this. <laughs> Get me out of here. Um, but thank you. I would say thank you. And I, I do say thank you to him. Thank you for coming to visit me on Saturday. Thank you for being at the jail at 9 o'clock at night and working on my testimony and helping me. Helping me. And I say to him, thank you. So if I, if I could have anything to say to him, I would say thank you. Well, now we're in 2019. You've been acquitted of this crime. How do you feel about Stephen Demick? He's a, he's a bueno abogado. He's a, he's a good man, and I appreciate what he did. He helped me show the jury that I'm a good person, and he helped me go home. Okay, well, let's reverse back into Stephen. And what, what are some lessons you've learned that you can pass on to young lawyers? Well, uh, this, this, this is a great, I'm going to stick with this case since we've been talking about it. Um, the, the jury acquitted uh, my client Miguel in less than an hour. 
But there was a note. There was a question from the jury when they went out. And I got up, Scott, and I think I did the best closing argument I've ever done. I, I hit every point. I, I was sincere. I gave the righteous indignation. And I left no stone unturned in that closing argument. I took every point that the prosecutor had, and I diffused it before their rebuttal. And I sat down, and my co-counsel said that was, that was at A+. And the jury came back with a note after about five minutes of deliberation. And the note was, we want to know what the word muebles means in English. And I'm not, I don't want to, I don't want to be judgmental, but it had nothing to do. It really, I mean, besides the fact that, you know, he had been hired in his mind to move furniture, muebles is furniture in Spanish. But here's what I learned. And it's very simple. The jury needed to feel that it was their verdict. And you just said it better than I ever could. It was their story. And as a young lawyer, that closing argument, it was my story. And I was going to tell them that they had to acquit. And I was going to walk my client out of that courtroom arm in arm and get the gold trophy and the confetti because it was my verdict and because I worked so hard for it. And that's my ego. What I learned was that the jury has to own that verdict. It has to be their story and it has to be their verdict. And so that question that they asked was simply, if I were to chair back the jury as a group, we want to feel that we're working. And so we're going to work by asking this question. And when you tell us, judge says, I can't answer that question. What's in evidence is in evidence. After that, 10 minutes later, it was a not guilty. And that's a valuable lesson for me, I think for any trial lawyer, is the bigger your ego, sometimes that gets in the way. It gets in the way of delivering justice to your client. Um, that was a very important lesson that I learned in that case. And how do you operationalize that in your practice and trying cases? Well, I, um, I try and come back to the ranch and I try and work the method and I try and, you know, uh, Jerry said it better than I ever could and, and really perfected the method and saying you have to transfer the responsibility to the jury and that's his bird story that for those of you who aren't familiar with it you can look it up on google um it's a great yes why don't you tell it to us sure sure um again i you i i feel like uh this is uh, sacrilege in some way because he does it better than i ever could but uh, the the story is very simply there's a village and there's a, a village elder who <clears throat> is purported to know everything. He's the wise man, if you will, of, of the village. And there's a young boy who says, I'm going to do what nobody's ever done in our village's history. And I'm going to trick the wise man. And I'm going to do it by putting a bird in my hand and covering it up. If you imagine a palm down and a palm over it. And I'm going to go to the old man and I'm going to ask him, old man, you're so wise. I have a bird in my hand. Is it alive or is it dead? And the old man turns to the young boy and he says, the bird is in your hand, son. And the purpose of that metaphor, the purpose of that story, and then you say to the jury, I put my client in your hands. I put that bird in your hands. Because you're giving your clients, you're giving your client figuratively, but literally you're giving your client's fate to the jury. And you're telling them that it is their decision and it is their responsibility at that point to deliver justice. You've transferred responsibility to them. 
the the little boy uh, was if the old man said the bird was alive, he was going to crush it in his hands and pop it out and say you were wrong, it was dead. And if the old man said the bird was dead, he was going to release his palms and the bird was going to fly. And he was going to say, you were wrong, old man. The bird was alive. But that's it, really, is that he was going to trick the old man because he had the power to determine whether the bird lived or died. The jury has the power to determine your client's fate. For me, for Miguel in that, cl- in that case, the jury had the decision and the responsibility whether he went to prison for five years, which they would never know because a judge wouldn't allow him to know that, or to set him free and let him fly back to his home. Uh, And that's why it's a powerful, powerful skill that we learn here is that transferring that responsibility to the jury so that it's their verdict. And so our egos um, of wanting to look good, of wanting to appear good, savoir-faire being debonair, being so articulate and Cicero in the courtroom does not get in the way of the ultimate thing that we're there to do, which is deliver justice for our client, for the little guy or for the little gal or for the little person that we represent. And how do you deal with your own ego? Because we all have them and they get in all of our ways. How have you dealt with it? Well, it's it's easy. Um, I'm I'm very self-critical. Uh, and I, I don't know if people would realize that I have a very powerful inner critic and I always feel like I'm not doing things correctly or I'm not doing things right. And I don't take compliments very well, which is even, you know, when you were introducing me, I kind of like a little boy was staring at the ground because to this day, I just don't take compliments well. And that's my story. That's my story of growing in a, up in a family with uh, older brother who was very smart, very well accomplished and, and, um, feeling a bit second rate as a young boy. And I think I've internalized an inner critic. How do I prevent or, or put my ego at bay in the courtroom? Um, I, I try and remember that I'm a player in the courtroom. And although I want to be the quote unquote power player because I want to have credibility And I want the jury to understand that they can look to me for answers and I will be honest with them and I will not lie to them, even when it hurts my case. Ultimately, at the end of the day, and I tell clients this in every criminal trial I have, there are only 12 people in that courtroom. There are only 12 people in that courtroom that can set you free. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what I think or how good a lawyer I am or what the judge does or what the prosecutor does. It's those 12 people. And I guess I keep that mantra in my mind is I never usurp the jury. I never try and invade their province. That's their province. They're going to make the decision. It's their story. I'm just trying to help them. Wow. You know, lastly, what advice do you have for trial lawyers out there that are trying to get better? Be, uh, be as real as you can and uh, live life down to the marrow. Suck it down to the marrow because uh, whether it's Guantanamo Bay where I've defended uh, detainees who are locked up for a decade in a prison with no criminal charges who are from a foreign country who don't speak my language and I don't speak their language who are a different culture, a different religion, different skin color. Um, or, 
uh, young Native American uh, boy. And right now I, I remember, I can see a particular boy that I was very fond of um, who committed suicide after his acquittal at trial, uh, who lived on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, who was a 23-year-old boy, didn't make it through high school, lived in dire poverty, um, and just had experiences that I've been fortunate enough not to have. Or uh, Miguel from Mexico, who's in a foreign country, um, who at that time I didn't have a family. Now I do have two beautiful children. Um, but who has a family, and I didn't have a family. But I guess what I'm saying is that if you go out there and experience life from as many different vantage points as you can, and you never look down on somebody, and you never look down on somebody's life or what they have or what they don't have, and you try and walk in their shoes and experience life the way they experience life, you are going to be a master communicator. And you're going to be a master communicator because there's going to be a piece of you that can always connect with another human being. I'm, I'm going to just give an example because I feel like I'm being very abstract. With my detainee client, one in particular at Guantanamo Bay, we would have the most intense conversations about what it was like to be a father because I was a brand new father and my beautiful daughter. And I think I went down there and she was only a, probably a year or two old. And I went down there and we sat for two hours and we didn't say anything about the law and we didn't say anything about the case or uh, Hamdan or the Supreme Court precedent or any of that. We just talked about what it was like to be a father. And he gave me the best advice I think I, I've ever received. He said, always come home with a smile, even though you don't feel it, you know, because there's going to be moments, and this was so touching to me, there's going to be moments when you can't see your kids. And so you're going to wish that when you walked into the door that day, and you had the worst day ever. <laughs> and we would joke about it because he's sitting there in prison in Guantanamo. And I'm like, I don't know if it gets much worse than this, dude. <laughs> but you, uh, even if you had the worst day ever, walk in with a smile. Even if that smile lasts for 10 seconds. Because that day that you can't be with your kid, you're going to want them to remember that that was their father's face walking in the door that day after work. And man, that was it. After that... Not only was I bonded with my client, but I could tell his story because to me, he and I were bonded. And in that limited temporal time, are bonded for the rest of our lives. Wow. <laughs> That's a whole lot of love, my friend. <laughs> well, I'm on the ranch and there's a lot of it here. So it's a, it's a safe place to express things like that and get in touch with things like that. Thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us. And I'm super excited to just watch your amazing career in South Dakota, in California. And I'm very, very proud and fortunate to call you my friend. Thank you, friend. Thank you for joining us today for Trial Lawyer Talk. If you like the show, I'd really appreciate it if you could give us a good review on iTunes, and I'd love to get your feedback. You can reach me at www 
www.scottglovsky.com. That's S-C-O-T-T-G-L-O-V-S-K-Y.com. And I'd love to hear your feedback. You can also check out the book that I published called Fighting Health Insurance Denials, A Primer for Lawyers. That's on Amazon. Uh, I put the book together based on 20 years of suing health insurance companies for denying medical care to people, and it provides a general outline of how to fight health insurance denials. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you in the next episode.